And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. This month we're hitting the final frontier with Marco and Alana of the science fiction fantasy epic saga. And we're applying John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus to their relationship woes. Lisa. Yeah. I'm no longer sick. Yay. But guess what? What? I'm coming down with a cold. Yeah, but you sound okay. I, I sound pretty good. That's how, how you know we're lovers. Yeah. Because we're sharing a Cause, cold. Because our lips touch every now and again. Gross. I just poured LaCroix all over my laptop. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I got yeah. a paper towel. Better on the MacBook than on the comic books, am I right? That is true. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we are recording this uh, back in the door cave at the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast headquarters. But when you're listening to this, we've been at the Sundance Film Festival. We've been in Park City for like a week. Yeah, for a week. And hopefully we've already talked to a lot of really rad people. Me and Jake Gyllenhaal were besties. My best friend is Shia LaBeouf. Wow, I did not expect that to happen, but... Me neither. You really did like his directorial debut, Honey Boy. That's right. Fingers crossed anyway. <laughs> right. So I would also like to direct our listeners' attention over to the Adventures in Poor Taste blog where they just celebrated Cyclops Week uh, because of the return of Scott Summers at the end of the Uncanny X-Men, X-Men Dissembled arc. And we, Lisa and I, contributed an article on Scott Summers and Jean Grey. And the and, five love languages. And the five love languages. Yeah. yeah really cool. Um, I, at least I hope we did because... Because I actually, well, neither of us have written we a single written word yet, yet. But I mean, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be really good. And, so. and, and for you in the past, it has been brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So go go head on over to their website uh, and uh, give us a few clicks. We really appreciate it. And Lisa, guess what? Chicken butt. Yes, that's, I hate when you do that to me. Uh, we talked about on the last episode a couple of our epic arguments that we've had over the course of our 10-year marriage. Yeah, and somehow I was the bad guy in both stories. Yep, and you'll continue to be the bad guy. I think that's how our arguments work. I am the villain of this marriage. But maybe not, because I do now remember the source of that second argument. Remember we were talking about how maybe it was something you said or dismissed about an article I had written for Film School Rejects? Yeah. And that's what the start of the uh -huh. conversation was? No. In actuality, we were at the Alamo Draft House in One Loudon. I am like scared. I'm like scared to find out what I did. No, don't be scared. <laughs> uh, I was bragging. I was regaling about my conversation with uh, Suspiria actress Jessica Harper and our conversation surrounding her role in the new Suspiria uh -huh. and how at that time they were pretending that Tilda Swinton was 
not the actor Lutz Ebersdorf playing the doctor in the film, that Lutz Ebersdorf was uh, a, a long lost, newfound actor for the Luca Guadagnino film. And when I was talking to Jessica Harper at Fantastic Fest, she was keeping up that fantasy. And, you know, the news had dropped that morning, and I was trying to get her to reveal that Lutz was not real, but she was playing and, and, and she was pushing the agenda. And I, and I, I, when we had Fantastic Fest, I was saying, like, look, that was actually kind of rude for her to do that. And you disagreed. Uh-huh. Yeah. That it wasn't rude. Yeah. I, t- I took Jessica Harper's side. I said that, well, Jessica Harper was told to pr- to put up this facade and to set, so she never got the word that they weren't playing that game anymore. Right, right, right. So we had an argument in Texas about that. Right. And then when we were back in Virginia at the Alamo Draft House in One Loudon, I was retelling this story again and... Once again, I also said that Jessica Harper was rude yes. In, in, yes. in maintaining the lie. I and remember. you got super mad. Because I was like, we have already had this conversation, and you know that I'm going to stand up for Jessica Harper because she was told to tell everybody that that was not Tilda Swinton. Oh, my goodness. Mystery solved. So I'm not the bad guy in that conversation. Somebody I, has to stand up for the older actress. Yeah, and and I th- I think I think you are right. Like it is all part of the game. I, I and, and I was really just taking the opportunity to brag about the fact that I had spoken to Jessica Harper. <laughs> and I stole I stole that ray of sunshine. Yeah, you stole like, my thunder. How dare! I can't believe once again you're calling the goddess, you know, Phoenix. From, oh, from Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, yeah, calling her rude. Yeah, I apologize, Jessica Harper. You should. You all, all women, an apology. Oh, damn. Well, I apologize, all women, Yay. for being an asshole Brad. Thank you. That feels great. Okay, so, uh, you know, this is going to be our last Marco and Alana episode for Aww. a little while. Just for a little while, Lisa. We're going to come back to them and Volume 5 of Saga later in the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to end our conversation uh, temporarily, temporarily, uh, with volume four. Um, you know, we've discussed this previously, uh, in these episodes, but you know, saga is obviously a total collaboration between writer Brian K. Vaughn and illustrator Fiona Staples. It's a rare treat to experience such a long running comic book series that has maintained the art style of one particular illustrator. Yeah. But to achieve that, Saga has had to take these lengthy breaks between arcs. Last year, after they wrapped up Volume 9, they also announced that they would be taking a longer break uh, for more than a year from the book. And we're still waiting for them to return to the series. Now, that might frustrate some on the surface. It's actually a brilliant move. Without these um, vacations, uh, the book just wouldn't be the beautiful tome that it is. And I like to think that that's what we're doing here with Marco and Lana. That we're just going to take a little bit of break, recharge, explore some other relationships, and then come back to them in Volume 5 of Saga. That sounds good to me. I mean, I feel like I've been waiting for Season 2 of 
Star Trek for like forever. Oh, you mean Discovery? Yeah, Discovery. Oh, yeah. And it's back, Lisa. Yeah, it is. We watched the first episode. We've really enjoyed it. Now, having said all of that, I do love seeing other comic book artists interpret Fiona Staples' designs. And before we got on to recording this episode, I was looking at the back of the Saga hardcover book two. And Vaughn and Staples have gathered several gorgeous pieces from their buddies in which they put their spin on Saga. And Lisa, I just want you to take a look at this book. Check out this gorgeous piece from Jen Bartell in the back here. I've marked it here with this bookmark. Oh, wow. Isn't that lovely? It's beautiful. It's um, like a portrait with um, Alana and Marco and an older Hazel, like a kid age. Yeah. uh, Spoilers. Hazel grows up beyond what we see here in volume four, which we knew was going to happen based on our conversation last week. Because that's how time works. And Hazel is uh, narrating from the future. Right, right, right. But it's got all of our friends. It's got Isabel and Prince Robot 4 and Franda. And and like Bartel's designs are certainly different, a little more um, cartoonish or traditionally cartoonish than Fiona Staples' yeah, work. Yeah, really heavy outlines. Yeah, it's, it, I, I love it. And so it's not like terribly alien from what we know of the comic already. Now I want to take you over to this other page okay. where we get to see Todd McFarlane, the creator of Spawn, famous Spider-Man artist, give his uh, rendition of Marco. He's going to have big... Oh, weird. This is a grizzled... Grizzled Marco. Yeah, that's a Marco that has seen some stuff. He is angular. He is angry. And he's wearing some slick sunglasses. And he's got like, like that cool little stubble there. Yeah. Uh, I, I, what I thought of the moment I saw this portrait of Marco from McFarlane is that's an extra from Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and, it, and it maybe is a little more representative of the hard, harsh reality that Marco has experienced. Yeah, I mean... As much as I love Fiona Staples, like, Marco does look like a barista. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, like, uh, that's... That's the Marco I know and love. And so seeing yeah. McFarlane uh, grizzle him up, it's, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me feel funny on my tummy. It's like when you look at those first uh, first Simpsons, when you look at the old Simpsons oh, yeah, right. and how yeah. ugly they are. Yeah, the ones that appeared on like the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah. Yeah, very, very different. So I don't know. I, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time this morning going through this volume, scouring online. Paul Pope does this amazing variant cover of the stock Ooh. from the first arc. I really 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 enjoy that uh so yeah I, I i like i appreciate that this book is one vision but it's fun to see other artists interpret it yeah it's like really really good fan art and actually kind of rare there aren't a ton of people doing fan art of saga despite its popularity interesting yeah well there's no way you can hold a candle up to fiona staples when it comes to these particular characters truth bomb truth bomb okay let's get into volume four yes i am excited for this conversation lisa this is the book that broke your heart originally you refused to go further into the series because of the events that transpire here yeah and And i stand by that oh 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 don't spoil don't spoil don't spoil that i want to get back to that (laughs) volume four contains issues 19 through 24 and you know it's it's again it's a lot of plot it's really melodramatic 
in comparison to the other volumes we've already read. It does feel like a... Uh, and almost a, a genre shift from the first three volumes. Mm-hmm. Like by entering into the open circuit and the planet of Gardenia, it's 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 becoming a different kind of sci-fi romance story. Right. But let's break down the basic plot beat for beat here. Uh, at the end of the last volume, Lisa, you wondered how much time had passed between the majority of that book and the last page, which revealed the time jump to Hazel's time years? Yeah. Well, the first page of volume four answers that question. We get another one of those shocking splash pages with an emphasis on splash. (laughs) We see an extreme close-up of young princeling's head pushing outside of his mother's vagina, crowning, and Prince Robot 4's kid is born. Yep, she's (laughs) well-groomed. Or I don't know, maybe they're just different down there. Mm, Yeah, maybe. Uh, So I get, but but that, that means that the time jump between the last volume and this volume is about nine months. Does that actually line up? Does that uh, time-wise make sense? I think so, because if this little little one was conceived about nine months ago, right when Hazel was born, and now she's walking... That's about a nine-month nine time frame. Is that, again, we still don't know how babies work and yeah. when they start walking. We could probably Google it, but so can you. Yeah, so we're not going to. Nah. We quickly learn that Marco, Alana, Isabel, and Clara have escaped to the planet of Gardenia, where Alana has joined the open circuit, which is the interactive virtual reality soap opera industry that D. Oswald Heist and Clara manipulated Marco and Alana into contemplating in the last volume. That turned out to be a great idea. Uh, (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. While Alana is out bringing home the bacon as a performer, Marco is acting as a stay-at-home father, taking Hazel to the playground, and flirting with her dance instructor, Jenna. Yes. Uh, Alana is apparently not the greatest uh, actor in the world, and she's constantly being degraded by her director. To get through the misery of such lowly performance, Alana begins taking the narcotic fadeaway, which she gets from D. Oswald Heist's ex-wife, Yuma. Dun, dun, dun! I'm probably going to get tired of doing that. I should stop that dangerous precedent. Well, we learn that while Prince Robot is escaping disgrace in the arms of sex workers of Sextillion, a black and white citizen of the robot kingdom named Dengo murders for his wife and kidnaps the newborn princeling. Along with a bunch of other people. I mean... He murders a ton of people. Total kills. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Dengo heads to Gardenia so he can expose the hypocrisy of the robot kingdom on the open circuit. And when Four learns of his wife's death and child's kidnapping, he murders Madam Mama Son, rips himself from his Sextillion stupor and heads back home to attend to the funeral of his wife. His father, King Robot, with his amazing HD head, (laughs) is utterly disgusted with him, and Four begins his journey to find his child. While on the open circuit, Alana quotes a passage from D. Oswald Heist's which reads, never worry what other people think of you because no one ever thinks of you. I'm clearly not an actor. Uh, She dismisses Yuma's concern that anyone would recognize her improv, but of course, the journalist Upshur is watching and recognizes it immediately. His hunt for the truth is reignited. Marco and Alana confront each other outside of their wooden rocket ship. Marco attacks Alana because she's been using Fade Away and Alana attacks Marco because he's been whispering sweet nothings at Ginny while he's sleeping. Dun, 
dun, dun. You get the rest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the heat of the argument, Marco throws the groceries at Alana and a can of vegetables or whatever hits her in the face pretty hard. He's horrified and Alana kicks him out of the rocket ship. While Isabel and Alana have a heartfelt conversation regarding her drug use, Marco runs to Ginny's house and nearly kisses her before spotting Hazel's stuffed animal punk conk on her table. He grabs the plushie and rushes to return him to Hazel. Unfortunately, Dango has landed on Gardenia at this point and makes his way to the wooden rocket ship. His plan is to infiltrate the open circuit, uh, but that's failed, so he's going to use their ship to meet up with some nefarious friends. Marco is left on Gardenia, staring up as they flee into space. Finally, Marco and Alana are separated, as predicted by Hazel's narration in the first issue. The final chapter of the book follows the Will's sister, a.k.a. the Brand, as she meets Goose on Quietus. Goose tells the Brand about Gwendolyn and Sophie, and the Brand tracks them both to another planet where they're trying to steal Formula 9763, which should cure the Will of his sleeping sickness. He may not want escape, though, because he's having all kinds of fun with the stock while he slumbers in his coma. Now, back on Quietus, Yuma arrives and asks Goose's help in tracking his livestock buddy, Frendo, that's aboard the wooden rocket ship with Alana, Hazel, Clara, and Dengo. Marco and Prince Robot 4 have partnered up and are ready to hunt down the bastard Dengo who has stolen their children. The end. Yes! So, in my little um, abandonment of this story, of Saga, I never made it to when Marco and Alana were actually split up. Oh, you mean you got to the yeah, grocery I, scene and then you were just like, nope, done. No, I don't even think I made it to the grocery scene because I remember seeing like Hazel's little narration. This is the story of how my parents split up. And is that when you quit? You and, quit right there on issue I knew, one? I knew Alana was on drugs. I knew that Marco was flirting with this Jenny person. And I was like... I'm not interested. So you stopped actually not at the skish moment when, when, when Hazel says, like, I want to skish. Yeah. You stopped in the next issue with the introduction of the drug element and the introduction of Jitty. Yeah, because for me, what I really loved about this comic was the fact that these two two people were together. And I thought that, you know... Alana going into the entertainment industry and getting hooked on narcotics and Marco hooking up with the next sweet female-shaped thing that walks by. She's got that cute little bat nose. Yeah, she's got a little button nose and poor intentions, <laughs> malintentions in her heart. I was just like... Th- I thought those two storylines were just so cliche and I was just hoping that this couple was above that kind well, of thing. Well, as a woman who has been killing her marriage for the last 10 years, Lisa, yes. I know that one of your pet peeves in relationship stories is when the couple, because drama requires conflict, splits over some BS reason. You've never liked that in storytelling. I haven't because they go through all of this adventure to bring them together and the fact that they would allow something as 
like like let pe- petty differences and poor choices tear them apart. Drug use. I can kind of understand why Alana took that tablet. Uh, you know, you I, you get where she, her headspace is at that point. Now, is that a cliche way to drive a wedge into the story, especially pairing it up with the cute neighbor next door? Yeah, probably. Yeah, but I think you need a serious break in the story you you need a you need a conflict between their happy union to get to the next chapter of saga in volume five which we're not talking about right now we have to talk about the breakup like i understand and and i didn't realize when um i saw the narration this is where my parents split up there's their split up was less about the argument and more about like dengo physical distance like they got like separated yeah they never actually have a conversation that ends with well i don't want to see you again we're getting a, a a space divorce exactly so that that doesn't exactly happen but to me I think that Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples could have knocked heads for a little bit to try to find something more original to break up these two characters. I I hate to besmirch the names of Vaughn and Staples, (laughs) but to me, it's just not original enough for these two beautiful characters. I I would agree that this falls into a convention, and maybe that's a little bit disappointing. Uh, That being said, I like this volume overall. I like the conflict. I like them being pushed to these emotional spaces, and I love the introduction Introduction of the Dengo character and his frustration and this idea of the robot kingdom, you know, still suffering from all the same class BS that we all deal with. Uh, you know, this poor little black and white television who had this beautiful child die of dysentery because, you know, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and he's pissed and he wants to take that fight to the stars. And, 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 and so I, I like I like the overall plot of what is happening in volume four, but I do recognize your frustration of the mechanics of how that is achieved. I like all of that stuff, but you got to agree that the least interesting storyline in this particular volume is Marco and Alana. I don't know if it's the least interesting because the whole volume is building to them being shattered. But, you know, the open circuit as a landscape for this story is so different than anything else we have seen previously. I I, I don't know if I enjoy... Gardenia and the open circuit as a playground in the same way that I did, you know, Cleave and other settings of the previous three volumes. Certainly not as interesting as the confrontation with novelist D. Oswald Heist on Quietus. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also recognize that Vaughn and Staples are hopping to a totally different realm and wanting to, you know, play around and and, and try a unique arena for this sci-fi romance comic to explore. But it's not a unique arena. We have seen in movies, on television, like the idea... Biopic after biopic. That, you know, a person goes into the entertainment business and, oh no, they're on drugs and it's ruining their relationships. We've seen that before. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that. And certainly volume four is 
probably my least favorite book in the entire run as it stands through volume nine. But I do like how Saga enjoys genre hopping and it's going to continue to do that as we go forward. Uh, You will see them playing around with convention. And I'm just saying Gwendolyn and Sophie as her ward teaming up to find a magical miracle cure for the will and Dango taking on this crusade, chopping up a whole bunch of robot peoples to kidnap this child are two storylines that are way more interesting than Alana getting hooked on drugs and Marco contemplating sleeping with the dance instructor. Yeah, I I guess you're right in the sense that I I think what's compelling about Marco and Alana in, in this arc is that they will break up at some point and seeing how that happens and then how Vaughn and Staples subvert that anticipation or that dread. Yeah, I think compelling is the exact right word because I do want to know what happens with Marco and Alana. I'm just disappointed that this had to happen. <laughs> You're to doing Marco a lot of Alana. eye rolling. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's get done with John Gray and men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. This is going to be our last episode talking about this insane metaphor. And, and, and how are you, how are we going to do it for volume four, Lisa? Yes. Let's put this misogynist <laughs> self-proclaimed love expert behind us. And I can't think of a better way to do that (laughs) than bringing to light chapter 10, scoring points with the opposite sex. Good to know. I need uh, this. I'm gonna I'm gonna be taking notes as as you're talking about this because I need to know about these opposite sex points. Because men are from Mars and women are from Venus. They're from opposite planets. Men and women cannot relate to each other. That's why we need John Gray to enlighten us. They keep score in a relationship. They keep the balance of a relationship differently. Men assume that grand gestures are worth big points. So let's say there's a doctor named Chuck. Okay, Chuck. Chuck assumes that when he goes to work every day and brings home the paycheck, that should be worth 30 points. And if he works so hard, he gets some kind of promotion and a raise that should be worth 60 points. So who's determining how much a point is? I mean, I guess, I guess it's his own personal point system. We all come up with our own personal point systems. Right. And he goes like, I'm working really hard. I'm providing for this family. I want some high fives. Yeah. That should be worth 60 points. Okay. Okay. Chuck. Okay. But women score all gestures, whether it is going to work or opening the car door, as one point. So Chuck sees all that hard work as 30 points, but his wife sees it as, as one, one point. point. And uh, w- w- what's his wife's name? His, his wife's name is Pam. Okay. His wife's Chuck name and is Pam. Chuck and Pam. So Chuck comes home from work. He assumes, I did a hard day at work. That's 30 points. Meanwhile, she's been at home. She's done his laundry. She did the shopping for the day. She reorganized their closet. She paid the bills. So she's been at home doing those daily tasks. And so she feels like she's earned 11 points Mm. and he's only earned 
one point because all he did was go to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So the way that um, John Gray goes on to explain how to keep a woman happy, oh, he okay. said Note-taking. that you have to imagine that women have a love tank. Really? Those exact words. The five love languages. It's yeah. back. Yeah. So Gary Chapman. Ripped off meta from Mars, women from Venus. Yeah, but I think the Gary Chapman metaphor of the love tank works better because. Oh, I'm me, sure. For me, <laughs> like the way that John Gray explains like women's needs having to be fulfilled are less like a love tank and more like a parking meter where you just every once in a while you just have to put a quarter in that meter okay so he goes on to um do a list of 101 ways to score points with a woman got it and and it just reads like the the editor was like Oh, no, this book is three pages short. How are you going to fill three pages? Hey, if there's anything I've learned from writing online is people love a list. So the list is 101 points, but they cross over a lot. And they read like you're trying to program an android to act human. Like they're the kinds of things like some of them are like sweet things you can do, like bring her flowers, make sure that you give her a hug when you come home from work. But other ones are like, um, like a good roommate stuff. Like if you notice that the trash can is full, just offer to take the trash out. (laughs) And other things are like literally like you are, a completely inconsiderate human being. So you need to be told that when she talks to you, put down the magazine and turn the TV off and actually listen. So um, some other of these 101 ways to score points with women is give her four hugs a day. Very specific. Four hugs a day. Four hugs a day. I'm definitely, I I succeed in that. I give you more than four hugs. Oh, yeah. You way exceed my number of hugs. I I love it. I'm all hugged out. Um, learn her favorite drinks so you can offer her a choice of the ones you know she really likes. You like an Armoretto Sour. I do. And when I'm at home, a bubbly LaCroix. Yeah, an LaCroix. Yeah. <laughs> Which I will apply liberally to my laptop. <laughs> and um, I like this one. This is number 72. Offer to carry heavy boxes for her. Like, who's, like, looking <laughs> what at... What boxes? Well, who's looking at their wife lugging lugging around a heavy box and doesn't go, like, let me help you with that box? <laughs> this is another one. This is number oh, 80. God. When listening to her, reassure her that you are interested by making little noises, like, aha, aha. Uh, this is a thing. This is oh, what I'm learning. Oh, no, uh-huh. no, no, no. John Gray's a jerk. That's what I know. It's like that episode of Next Gen when the, when like Data's like, I want to learn how to tell a joke. Oh, and like, then Joe Piscopo shows up. Yep, yep. Joe Piscopo, better teacher than John Gray. Fact. I like this one. Number this is number ninety nine. Eat lightly on romantic occasions so you don't become stuffed and tired later. I mean, I try to apply that myself. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like uh, it reminds <laughs> me of. Uh, uh, one of my favorite actual love experts, Dan Savage, on the Savage Love Cast. His number one uh, relationship advice for Valentine's Day is fuck first. Yeah. And go out to the heavy meal later. Yeah, that's because a Because after call. you have a heavy meal, who like wants to get down to business? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, number 101, 
leave the bathroom seat down. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I never do that. I, I, I had brothers, and I understand that you can't just sit down on a toilet without looking. <laughs> well, we could be here all night if we're going to list all 101 rules. I'm just saying that it's ridiculous. Agreed. Um, so uh, John Gray tells a personal story about the time his wife actually left a handwritten note for him about how her feelings were getting hurt because he was working so hard and he was coming home from work so late that they didn't get to spend time with each other. And so um, the loving thing he decided to do was consider his wife the eighth client. Oh, so he would God. he would now schedule one last client for the day so he could put on, in time with his wife. Uh, okay. Yeah. So now you've got to be curious. How, how do men... How do how do women score points with men? Oh, um, by lifting heavy boxes. No, no, no. Men don't give points for actions, oh. it turns out. So it doesn't matter how much laundry you've done or how well you're keeping the house or, or whatever, because he doesn't care about any of that stuff. All he cares about is loving gestures, like so... Kisses. Kisses, hugs compliments, encouragement, and ignoring when he's being a total prick. Yeah, I I really appreciate it when you ignore when I'm being a total prick. So instead of having like a list of 101 things women can do to please their man or earn big points with their man, he has a whole um, slate of scenarios under how women can score big with men. Okay, but not a list. It's, It's not a list. It's like different situations so the very first one is number one he makes a mistake and she doesn't say i told you so or offer advice that's worth 10 to 20 points how about this one this is um number six he forgets to pick something up again and she says with a trusting patience and persistence it's okay would you still get it So she doesn't, he forgot something and she's not pissed off. That's also worth 10 to 20 points. How about this one? She asks him for support. This is number eight. She asks him for support. He says no, and she's not hurt by his rejection, but trust that he could, he would if he could. She does not reject him or disapprove of him. That's worth 10 to 20 points. Okay. That's not uh, 100% terrible. How about number 16? When he asks her to do something and she says yes and stays in a good mood. That's oh, worth, okay. That's worth one to 10 uh, Yeah, points. this is no good. Are I you take, seeing it, I take back my comment. How about number 22? He forgets <laughs> where he puts his keys and she doesn't look at him as though he was irresponsible. That's worth 10 to 20 points. What a great wife. She is tactful or graceful in expressing her dislike or disappointment about a restaurant or a movie when on a date. That's worth 10 to 20 points. Pam seems really, uh, you know, obedient. So, yeah. um, For all women can do to earn points with men is uh, stay in line. That's how how we score points. Um, And... One thing that Martians do, men do, that women don't do, is they give penalty points. So if a woman does something that makes him feel untrusted, unloved, judged, irresponsible, whenever a woman acts out disappointment, she's penalized. 
And he also has a love tank, but it's not filled with actions. It's filled with submission, it seems. And kisses and stuff. Yeah. So I I saved a direct quote um, from the book that I find really revealing and deeply menacing. So I'm just going to read this directly from the book. When a man is in a negative state... If she can treat him like a passing tornado and lie low, after the tornado has passed, he will give her an abundance of bonus points for not making him wrong or trying to change him. Damn. So the way John Gray wants his wife, supposedly, and wants women to act around their men is cowering in fear so that they're not ripped apart like a poorly built shed in your backyard by a tornado. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Um, This has been another episode of John Gray sucks. He is a bad dude and he wants women to get in line. Um, all right. Uh, but Lisa, we're trying to incorporate men are from Mars, women are from Venus. This was the best selling <laughs> nonfiction book of the 90s. And we wonder why we're in this like freaking Me Too mo- movement. Like this idea that women have to live in fear around their men. Like it's ridiculous. And what this all comes down to is the idea that men are going off to work. And women are staying home. Mm. Ah, so this is how we're going to turn it on its head with Saga Volume 4. Yeah, so this is where things are flipped. Alana is the one who's going to work all day. Getting that bacon. And it takes a lot out of her, but then everybody who's left taking care of Hazel and taking care of the house, they feel unsupported by Alana because she is not present for her family. So now Marco is the one and Clara and Isabel (laughs) taking care of Hazel, doing the laundry, doing the shopping and doing that day to day stuff that keeps a family together. And Alana is out of it. And then by taking this drug, she's even she's taken the idea of not being present for her family in a literal, like a literal sense. She's like, she's not there. She's, she's on drugs. She's mentally elsewhere and she's not caring for her family. And, and the, this imbalance is there. Um, John Gray has this idea called resentment flu. And the Mm. thing is when one person in the relationship becomes resentful, then the other person catches it. Well, that's, that's certainly true. And that's something that I really worried about when we made our transition uh, this year, where I was going to spend the majority of my time at home in front of the computer and you were hitting the road, you know, going to student to student to student. I was worried that you would catch a little bit of that resentment flu. But I think we do a really good job of supporting each other. Like while I'm at work, you actually do do a lot more of the housekeeping things. You have become the person who does the laundry. You are the person who... I do the dishes. You do the dishes. But Marco is doing all those things, Marco's too. Marco's doing all of those and things. And you haven't gone to, like, crack cocaine or anything, have you? I have not. And I, and I take care of you in other ways. You know, I'm the one who 
goes, does all of the shopping mm-hmm. because I'm the one who's out. I can stop and get stuff at the on the way home from the grocery store. I'm the one person who does all of the cooking because I care a lot about the healthfulness of our food and sure. I'm the person who cares more. So it makes yeah. more sense. I just I'm want one burgers. Food. And we do prioritize quality time with each other. Yeah. And, and we're lucky to have that. Not everybody has the lux- sure. luxury. Sure. Like right now, maybe Alana doesn't have the luxury of spending this time with her family. Well, of course not because Alana and Marco have Hazel. Yeah. We don't. They have Hazel, <laughs> but also the open circuit is a full time like she's when she comes home Hazel's in bed mm. Marco is exhausted and she's exhausted because what she does is very physical um, it's emotionally draining in ways she didn't anticipate and she doesn't necessarily want to burden her family with mm-hmm. so so that's where that that like you said before that wedge mm. well that resentment flew that resentment flu. Now, um, the way the resentment flu works in the point system with John Gray, women don't necessarily do penalty points, but they do, like, if, for example, they get so far ahead in points in their estimation, like they've done a thousand things around the house and all he's done is gone to work. Um, she'll say, okay, he's earned seven points this week for going to work, but I've earned 45 points Hmm. for all of the things I've done around the house to keep our family Hmm. running. So she then subtracts his seven points from her thirty-eight, uh, her 47, 45 points. Oh my goodness. How does math work? (laughs) 45 points, which makes... Her have 38 points, and he has zero points. And she it. she then treats him like a zero. <laughs> and when she's acting unloving toward him, he gives her a bunch of penalty points, and he emotionally withdraws. And now he's the tornado that's going to rip her apart. Oh God, tornado. Yeah. So let's officially go into session. Let's talk... Marco and Alana. Okay. I want to start all the way back in issue 19 with their very first argument that we witness in this book. Okay. What's that argument about? Alana just came home from work and she's tired and she's looking forward to seeing Hazel, but Mm -hmm. Clara tells her Hazel's asleep. She's in bed. Marco ran her ragged at the playground today and she's like, what? And they have this argument about, like, Alana's going, like, you're supposed to be laying low. Like, you can't just take Hazel out and go anywhere. Like, people are after us to kill us. And Marco's response is, don't worry, I went out of disguise. He's got, like, that unknown soldier (laughs) bandage attire. Worst, most suspicious disguise ever. He's got, like, some blonde streaks in his hair now. Yeah. And um, he says, like, we promised that we would give Hazel the richest life we could, and we're not going to be able to do that just staying at home in our treehouse slash tree rocket. Right. And it starts to get pretty heated, but then Hazel wakes up. Yeah, and this moment is, like, crushing, right? So it's the end of issue 19. Hazel is woken by their argument, and she says, I want skish, and... 
Alana has been away so long, she doesn't even know what skish is. And Marco has to explain skish is a squish. She wants us to hold her between us. So she's like the the marshmallow in a, in a s'mores sandwich. So when that sweetness happens, it softens, softens them both. And Alana's like, hey, I love you. And he's like, I love you more. And she's like, we're going to be okay, right? And then you turn the page to a splash and it's the skish in accent action uh, uh, Hazel is in between a mother and father but then we have Hazel's future narration written above their heads and what does it say Lisa this is the story of how my parents split up I remember first reading this page and like my heart clenched I was I just couldn't believe it I was like what is happening and your heart probably clenched but it was more like god damn it Brian K <laughs> where is this going I don't approve <laughs> this is the flap of of Pages hitting wall. Yeah. Okay. So that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the first like major turning point in this volume emotionally. I want to go back and take a little closer look at this argument and get to the bottom of what it's really about. Okay. Because as we know from John Gray, looking at the anatomy of an argument, it's never about what you think it's about. So I think it's very revealing that the first panel with Marco on the top of the page is, can we please fight about this in the morning? Mm -hmm. Because clearly they're fighting all of the time at the end of the day. Right, yeah, yeah. And this is not a first argument occurrence. Right. And so she goes into, Marco, we agreed to keep a low profile, but then he responds defensively, says the woman who broadcasts herself to the universe every day, so passive-aggressive question, right? And... Now the argument is about something else. I have to take, like, I have to do open circuit. I have to take this risk because I'm providing for the family. And he's like, what? Because you're bringing home the paycheck. I'm not also working. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So now he's going, he's do he's, he's tallying up the points. Yeah, well, resentment flu has leaked in. Exactly. I made the waffles. I took her to the playground. I changed your diaper. And she's going like, well, I went to work and going to work has to be worth like 60,000 points mm-hmm. because my yeah. job is so soul taking. Yeah. She's being very Martian in this moment. She is. She is. And um, he's kind of taking the side of, you're not home with Hazel. You don't know what Hazel needs. I know what Hazel needs because I'm her primary caregiver at this point. And earlier in this issue is when Marco takes Hazel to the playground and we meet Ginny for the first time. Right. And that first conversation is pretty innocuous, but it's clear that... um, Marco finds her pretty. He's stumbling all over himself. Yeah, well, she is a cutie. Yeah, and and he gets her card. She's like, hey, Hazel seems to have a lot of energy. Um, how about bringing her to some of my dance classes? Yeah, yeah, but seemingly harmless at this point. Yep, but you know, a lot of these people who come into our lives and look like heroes are actually acting more like villains. I don't remember the direct quote, and it happens later anyway, but still. 
Now, we have talked about how Yuma gives Alana fade away for the first time, and it's there just to be a distraction. But over the course of those first few issues, we begin to see that Alana has started taking it while she's performing. And not only that, when she gets home, she's still high on fade away. And in her interactions with Hazel, she's high. That's right. So now, because she's hooked on this drug, she's not only escaping from her work life, but she's escaping from her home life. But she does receive a pretty nice raise from the open circuit, and she basically attributes that uh, increase in pay to her consumption of fadeaway. Yeah. And that leads to the saddest of sex scenes between Marco and Alana. That's right. So Marco is feeling guilty because he's been flirting with Ginny, the dance instructor, and he's desiring some closeness with his wife and um, she is hiding from him that she is taking drugs, but they still manage to initiate and have sex. But then there is this narration from Hazel who is putting this sex between her parents in perspective. Which again is one of the beautiful aspects of saga is that it allows for a child in the future to narrate over the coupling of her parents. We don't know how old she could be like an old old lady at this point narrating her parents sex. That's what I'm saying. Yeah it's nuts. Um, But it ends with um, Hazel saying some nights even two old friends deciding to get together as close as humanly possible could still be worlds apart. So and there's that one panel where we see Marco necking on Alana and that far off distance that Alana has, you know, it's the fadeaway stare, really a crushing piece of art from Fiona Staples. They're both hiding stuff and it's literally like the loneliest sex scene narrated by a child I have ever read. Well, and and for a book that really um, puts out these amazing sex positive encounters, uh, you know, you know, they can often be shocking and splashy, <laughs> but they are usually quite beautiful and joyous. And I think, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but I feel like this is the first sex scene in all of Saga that is truly tragic and um, full of sorrow and dread. Yeah. That brings us, Lisa, to issue 22 and that grocery-throwing confrontation between Marco and Alana. And it's really just two people catching themselves in their horrible behavior and acting defensively from it. So Alana is being dropped off at her wooden rocket ship by her coworker Kayfabe. And before she walks inside, she is about to take a hit of fade away. And that's when Marco is coming home with the bag of groceries. 
And he's like, hey. And then she has the most like <laughs> guilt face, guilt face. Marco. Hey. Right. And, <laughs> you know, he, he's infuriated uh, that she would one, not only be taking fate away, but that she'd be taking fate away before seeing their daughter. So and behind his back and behind his back. But then w- what really takes him over the edge is the fact that she's been high around Hazel. That is the height of the argument. And I think that that is the greatest wrong. The, the fact that not only is she working and she is physically not present for her during most of the day, but now she's taking drugs and she's mentally not there for her even when she's home. And, and he's not wrong to be upset by that. But I find it interesting that a lot of the resentments that were laid out there in that argument we were talking about way back at 19 before the skish moment. This idea that now that she is going to work, she doesn't respect Marco anymore because he can't work and he's at home with him. Right, it all goes back to the resentment flu. Exactly. That resentment is like a landmine in their relationship. So every time a new issue comes up, they're just tripping over the same stuff, you know? So, you know, he's like, so you do drugs now. She acts defensively. This is the only way I can work. And he's like, oh, because I'm helpless and I can't work. I get it. You know, he's being defensive. And then that's when she brings up Ginny. And, um, and he's like, what did Hazel tell you? Exactly. <laughs> you know, but, and, and so he brings up the, have you been high in front of Hazel? He brings that up as a diversion from the Ginny conversation. But I think that but the Jenny conversation is the fact that he, she, that Alana didn't learn it from Hazel. Alana learned it from Marco. Marco has been saying this talking in his sleep. about yeah. Ginny in her sleep, but he's, Let's keep in mind, he technically hasn't done anything wrong. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, he he's had this mental escape that's built upon insecurities because he doesn't feel loved by his wife yeah, anymore. Yeah, but Lisa, if I was whispering, you know, oh, ScarJo, oh, oh ScarJo. <laughs> I would be jealous. I would be super jealous. But and mad, straight and mad. I would be jealous and I would be mad. But you still haven't technically, in my eyes... And hopefully, in my actions, you haven't done anything wrong. Sure. I'm not uh, Scott Summers and Emma Frost and New X-Men. Exactly. Having a psychic affair. You're not having a psychic affair with ScarJo in your collective mind. But I think that he did bring up the have you been high in front of Hazel as a diversion. Mm -hmm. But then when he heard the actual answer, he was way more upset than he anticipated. And he acted out physically by chucking the groceries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for him, you know, as a as a person who's been struggling with pacifism and trying to ignore this inner rage monster that he fears is there uh, to, you know, he, he doesn't hit his wife, but to throw a big bag of canned vegetables, I mean, he might as well have. Yeah, and, and you know, she's like the expression on her face. She, she's she's not, shocked. She's shocked. She's not physically and hurt. But mad. It, it, you know, it was an owl moment. Yeah, and, and she kicks him out at that moment. Do not come to our home. Get out of here. And so where does he go? He goes to Ginny's? Like, he, that's where, like, the biggest, um, you know, betrayal happens. He has no friends. Who is he going to 
complain to about his wife to his mother who's calling him a house husband you make an excellent point Ginny is his only companion on Gardenia exactly so he has literally nowhere to go so he goes there and he tries to vent like have a vent moment but then she goes back to being flirtatious and he feels like garbage and so he uses punk honk punk honk thank god for punk honk that's right the savior of this relationship and he takes punk honk and uses that as an excuse to leave right right right. and unfortunately dingo has arrived yeah so Marco has his come to Jesus moment in terms of their relationship uh what about Alana so Alana doesn't have punk honk but Alana does have Isabel. So Alana is upset, staring out into the darkness, covered in vegetables. And Isabel comes out and um, tries to rationalize with Alana and going like, you know, yeah, he threw the groceries, but it, you know, it's just vegetables. Like you're fine. And Alana goes on to say, I watched my father beat my mother. Like I have zero tolerance for any kind of physical violence. So she's laying out this principle. I have a principle. I don't let a man lash out at me, which is something that Alana does of defensively a lot falls back on these principles like for example back when she was almost fired from the open circuit for lashing out at a heckler right saying i was just defending my my fellow cast members i was just defending the art of the open circuit but in reality she was just protecting her own feelings so to me i it is good to have a zero tolerance policy for violence but but i don't think that that's what kicking marco out was really about i don't think that she thinks that marco is capable of any kind of actual violence against her she just she's mad she's mad her feelings are hurt she's mad at him she's mad at herself she's mad she's feeling betrayed and so she gets rid of him and she in retrospect draws a hard line where one may not necessarily exist in this situation. So Isabel points out, yeah, my parents had a similar policy about drugs. So Isabel throws the fact that Alana has been taking drugs at home back in her face. And Alana tries to walk away from the conversation, like saying like, the the fadeaway isn't just about getting through my workday. You know, I've been through war. I've I've seen shit you do not understand. And Isabel is like, I'm dead. I, w- I was killed by this war. You think I don't understand war? And, and then Isabel goes on to say, like, I was, I died stepping on a landmine. But every day I think about why I broke up with my girlfriend and wishing I could take it back. So what do you want to cling to? Do you want to cling to these principles and these hard lines? Or do you want to cling to this person that you love, that you have a family with? Do you want to 
cling to your family in this situation. And what's Alana's response? She pops that fadeaway pill. Yeah, she takes more fadeaways. Uh, harsh truths. Better filtered through a through the cool haze of your placenta. Oh boy. I feel like I'm coming across pro-violence against women. Like I'm not <laughs> condoning Marco's actions, but I am on Isabel's side in the fact that, yeah, what Marco has done is in- unacceptable. What Alana has done, taking drugs around her child, is unacceptable. But I don't think for either person, these wrongs are insurmountable. I think that Isabel sees their love as something greater than their misguided actions. And and she doesn't want them to live with the regret that she now lives with in her death as a specter. Sure, and it is not the great argument you were expecting at the end of the first issue of this volume when Hazel forebodes that her parents are going to split. Yeah, they don't break up. Right, they're pulled apart by Dengo invading the wooden rocket ship and uh, scuffling with Clara and Alana, you know, blasting off the ship, leaving Marco staring up at the sky. I love this scene. I love that each woman on the rocket ship gets her little hero moment. Isabel's hero moment is a little bit lame because... He sees right through her big walrus monster that she becomes. Yeah, it doesn't work on those robot uh, citizens. But then Alana jumps into action. She blasts off the rocket ship and creates all of this chaos. Clara physically takes on Dango and rips his finger off. And they're blasting off into space. Oh. And it ends with Dango with a gun to the head of Clara. And right. that's the last we see. And the entire have. time, he also has the princeling in a uh, Bjorn on yep. his chest. <laughs> and that's the end of volume four. Um, you know, Prince, Robot, and Marco team up and with Yuma. And they're going in pursuit of Dango and wherever he has taken their loves. And Goose. And Goose. We can't forget Goose. And Lisa, you know, we are going to get so much more of that adorable character in the next volume. So my question to you is, um, before we head into our outro, volume four, I know you still have some issues dealing with how Brian K. Vaughn chose to uh, bring tension to their relationship. Later in the year, when we return to Marco and Alana, will it be a forced mark? Are you excited to jump into their next story? I am excited about seeing where Marco and Alana go. And I'm relieved that it didn't actually end with them splitting up in the relationship in the relationship sense and breaking up. And I think that this is one of the advantages to reading something in a volume as opposed to single issues. Because when I rage quit saga it was in single issues and i was like i don't want to wait a month to be (laughs) heartbroken sure sure i i understand that i i can totally understand that uh but now lisa we are at the point where we have to determine what we've learned from this month of marco and alana what we can apply to our own relationships and uh yeah so what's your big takeaway I think my big takeaway from this volume is that 
you can't really keep score in a relationship. Like, and, and that's something that showed up in the five love languages and men are from Mars, women are from Venus. This idea of tit for tat, you love me that way so I can love you this way. And you, you can't just keep score like that. It, it's what builds resentment in a relationship. Alana felt like she was working so hard that she no longer had to be emotionally present for her husband and child. And he felt like uh, he was working so hard keeping the household together and that she didn't appreciate it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. So you just have to realize that when you're in a relationship, you have to give a hundred percent of the time and be ready to, to take the spoon in the relationship, you know, keep things moving and, and keeping the relationship together. Also, I think that if there is something that's in your life, like, like this friendship with Ginny for mm -hmm. Marco, they didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but when he was with her, he felt guilt and he and he felt shame and he felt the need to hide something. And and it's like the KonMari thing. Like if you are doing something in your life that doesn't spark joy, you got to get it <laughs> out of there, which is what he did when he realized that he was in danger of going over the line with when Jenny. When he saw Punk Kunk. Or, yeah, or perhaps maybe he crossed a <laughs> line. You know, he, he got out of there. Yeah, um, I think my takeaway really was how secrets are poisonous to a relationship. Yeah, and absolutely. if there's anything in your life that you're hiding from your loved one, you should probably expose that. And um, Lisa... Especially when it, like, brings you shame. Like, if you're feeling shame. Yeah, and on that note, Lisa, I need to tell you... Oh, my God. ...that... In the closet, I used to have <laughs> a big bag of chocolate truffles that I was hiding from you. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I found those. You did? I did. You knew about them? I did. I didn't hide them that well. It they was, were just on I the bottom of the closet. I was looking for my gloves, and oh, I saw yeah. them, and they, they were looking Why did like, you say anything? Because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be... You don't want to shame me? I well, shame like you. I was feeling a little guilty, but you know, I I'm only telling you now because I've eaten them all. <laughs> I understand. Now we have no secrets. Amen to all that. Hallelujah. <laughs> so our next episode will be a special bonus episode recorded while we're at the Sundance Film Festival. Ooh. Yeah, hopefully we'll have lots of cool stories to discuss and maybe we'll even find a little comic book talk to incorporate into that conversation as well. I think our listeners would insist on it. Yeah, talk I think so comic too. Books. <laughs> um, but uh, the next romantic couple will be tackling in February is Batman and Catwoman and the relationship book we'll be incorporating into the conversation is He's Just Not That Into You by Greg Barrett and Liz Tuchillo. Okay, that's another quote-unquote classic like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and The Five Love Languages. Again, listeners, if you have books that you think Brad and Lisa will truly get 
positive relationship advice from counsel to aid in our sessions, please let us know. Why are you automatically disrespecting Greg Barrett? He may not be um, a fake PhD like John Gray, but he is a stand-up comedian. Hey, I'm 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 looking forward to this book. I've seen the movie that it is based on. So have I. I love me some Justin Long. <laughs> I don't know why. Now, the story we're going to use to kick off our conversation with Batman and Catwoman is a single issue, number 197 of The Brave and the Bold, written by Alan Brennert, illustrated by Joe Statton, and published in April of 1983. I gotta shout out the absolutely rad cover done by classic Batman artist Jim Aparo. It is beautiful and has an amazing tagline, Lisa. What is it? Night of passion, night of fear. (laughs) And we see the scarecrow looming over Batman and Catwoman who are mid-embraced and their capes are flowing in such a way that they form a great big Valentine heart. What? A Valentine heart? For February, how perfect. Correct. And of course, like around that heart, we see these spiders and snakes crawling their way towards them and this great big lightning bolt firing above the scarecrow. It's truly a gorgeous comic book cover. I'm really excited to get into a classic short mini comic before we kick off uh, the even larger and grander, more cliche issues that we'll be seeing in weeks uh, three and four of this conversation. Why am I setting it up that way? I don't know. But I don't know, I but I, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm intrigued. All right, Brad. It's time to wrap it up. Okay. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? All right, so you can track all our Sundance adventures at Mouthdork. Don't forget to head on over to theadventuresinpoortaste.com to read our article on the five love languages of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Hopefully it's written by this point. Uh, But Lisa, how about you? Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast and subscribing at iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify. And you can shoot us emails at cbccpodcast at gmail.com. And you can give us the gift of five stars and a lovely complimentary affirmative review on iTunes. It really helps out (laughs) the podcast. Seriously, do it. All right. So until next time, uh, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Oh.